This is 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media. And this is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, March 29th, 2023. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. Ahead, Shore and Cockrum back in our Furman Garner Performance Studio. That's in our second half hour. First, earlier this month, the Arkansas legislature filed Senate Bill 40, which would decriminalize fentanyl test strips, no longer classifying the strips as drug paraphernalia. Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith asked Chris Jones, advocate and co-founder of NWA Harm Reduction, about the importance of the strips, not just for reducing harm among users, but also for volunteers. I would say from the fentanyl poisoning, that's one of the things we're trying to change some terminology about fentanyl overdose versus fentanyl poisoning. People don't know that what they're taking is fentanyl. Um, the idea that it's put in a substance, if somebody, I understand it's still illegal to purchase meth, but I was purchasing meth, not fentanyl. I wasn't concerned about dying from meth use, but unknowing that there's fentanyl in it when that wasn't what was advertised to me. Um, that's the importance to me is... Um, I don't have to agree with somebody getting high to know that it doesn't have to be a death sentence. Um, I don't don't think that the punishment for using drugs should be the death penalty. Right now, possession of the test strips is considered a D felony in Arkansas, with the punishment ranging from zero to six years of prison time with associated fees and fines, leading to Chris's other concern with this classification. Part of my other concern with the test strips being a felony wasn't necessarily for the drug user, but not having volunteers that aren't willing to risk their freedom when we're just trying to save a life, right? Um, it's not necessarily, if somebody's going to get caught up um, with the paraphernalia, more than likely they're going to get the possession charge also, right? So it's not decriminalizing the fentanyl test strips. I don't know that that's allowing somebody to get away with using drugs. Um, I think that anybody that in the past has been charged with the test strips more than likely got the possession anyway, whether it was driving under the influence, the possession of drugs, other paraphernalia, right? At some point, the test strip isn't how we get it in our system. So whether it's a pipe, whether it's a syringe, there's other charges associated with it. I think this one, um, at this point, is just tacking it on. Chris's work, as his organization's name implies, focuses around harm reduction. Fentanyl test strips are just one part of that approach. Harm reduction can include providing current users with overdose-reversing Narcan, sometimes clean needles, and most importantly, resources and education. A lot of what we do with harm reduction, um, I'm not just out on the corner handing stuff out. A lot of it's the education. How do we use it? Why are we using it? What do we do if something does test positive for fentanyl? Um, And so when I say I've handed out 2,000, that's more than likely, you know, five to 800 people that have a little bit more education on why we're trying to see if there's fentanyl in our substances. I asked Chris to demystify and break down the stigma around harm reduction. I, I do run into a lot of people that feel like um, working with harm reduction is just enabling people. We're just out here helping people to, to use drugs, throw away their life, whatever the case may be. Um, that's not it. Um, it's loving someone that may not love their self. It's just showing compassion, approaching somebody without judgment, um, wanting to keep them safe. The amount of people I do, my, my day-to-day job is working for a treatment center. Uh, for substance use disorder and the amount of people that come in that say that they're alone, nobody cares, like they continued using, they don't want to, but they have no reason to stop. One person showing that they care when they don't have to, that can be a game changer. Um, That's one of the reasons that I do what I do with harm reduction is because I don't have to. Somebody that's using drugs sees that. Why are you sitting on the curb with me exchanging a clean syringe for a dirty one? Um, Because it would be me sitting there doing it if I wasn't in this field. And so I think that it gives somebody hope, that little flame of hope, uh, by somebody reaching out and just wanting to see them be safe. Um, I've also run into people that whether they've contracted diseases, whether they have hepatitis, um, endocarditis that has left somebody maybe mobility impaired, uh, that feel like they're not worth getting clean. They're not worth being saved. They're not worth um, to stop using um, if we can alleviate some of those barriers to treatment and recovery, more people would, would want to get in, right? Um, the amount of people, like I said, if, if they're receiving treatment for hepatitis for however long, they're not, they feel like they're not worth getting clean. Um, we can break down the barriers and the stigma around recovery. 
Uh, and I do that through harm reduction. I'm meeting my people. I don't necessarily want, like, I'm all about recovery. I don't want some, I don't want to just spend my time with the people that are asking for help. I want to spend my time with the people that don't know help's available. Um, that's why I'm here. Um, I was that guy that didn't know help was available, didn't understand what recovery was, and they kept me out there in the streets for for the majority of my life. Chris's main goal, saving lives and introducing people who are struggling with an addiction to what recovery can look like. I've had people that have reached out for safe use items um, over several several month period that the next time when they reach out and I'm like, yeah, after work, I'll swing by and, and I'll drop off supplies. But they don't want supplies. They just want to know the address to an NA meeting, right? They want to know, is there, with with my current insurance, is there a medication-assisted treatment program that I could get into? I don't want to die. The onset of stronger drugs, like synthetically made fentanyl, which are up to 50 times stronger than heroin and up to 100 times more potent than morphine, are changing the landscape of the overdose epidemic. According to the CDC, as much as two milligrams, or about the size of three grains of salt, is enough to cause a fatal overdose. And that's the goal for me, uh, is I'm tired of burying my friends. Using harm reduction is kind of opening the door uh, to introduce somebody to what recovery can be. Chris worries as we dive further into this epidemic that trends are changing than when he started this work almost two years ago. Fentanyl can be cut into almost any other drug, mainly pills, and it's hard to spot, odorless and tasteless. And the average drug user is getting younger. Several years ago when I started doing stuff with harm reduction as a peer, um, people weren't intentionally trying to get fentanyl. And so the current trend is seeing more and more people that they are trying to get fentanyl. Um, and that's scary to me. Um, I don't necessarily think that people are chasing the high with fentanyl. They're they're running away from the withdrawals, <laughs> right? Like it's not that I have to be high. It's that I don't want the withdrawals to kill me anyway. Um, and so that was one of the trends. Um, originally, I kind of thought that the overdoses were more just the intravenous drug users. Um, I'm seeing more and more people in treatment that aren't intravenous drug users, they're, whether they're smoking, whether they're snorting. Um, and so I don't know if it's stronger, if that's just people, trends have kind of changed in drug use. Um, younger people, um, a lot more of the youth. I know locally we encourage people to test pharmaceuticals that they buy on the street. Some of those have come back, right, with having counterfeit pills. They're passing. People think that it's a Xanax. Um, very dangerous with a benzo and the fentanyl. Um, we can reverse the opioid overdose, but depending on the benzos, there's still an overdose happening, and Narcan's not helping. Uh, Narcan does not reverse um, the benzos. So more pill use, right? Like originally it was kind of more toward the heroin, meth, the street drug thing. Um, the trend has gone more toward prescriptions that I've seen. A lot more people reaching out that aren't using meth and heroin uh, it's just prescriptions that they're buying on the street. Looking towards the future, I asked Chris what he thinks could make a difference in this epidemic. The answer, arm the public and first responders with knowledge and recovery resources. Yeah, I I think that the test strips is a step in the right direction. It's definitely not going to solve this epidemic. So a cop with resources is another game changer to me. And so working with law enforcement to know what recovery resources are available, what doctors are going to be able to treat these these conditions outpatient, what resources are available, whether it's through the CSU here in town, whether it's other treatment centers. Um, so I think a cop with a handful of phone numbers. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. Regular listeners to our show know there are plenty of authors in the area. Saturday, you can meet some of them and hear them read their work. A book festival in Rogers Saturday will highlight authors who write for children and for adults. Ozarks at Large's Dino Carruth delivers a preview later this hour. Walton Arts Center is proud to present the 2023-24 Procter & Gamble Broadway series, including the Arkansas premiere of Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird, plus Jagged Little Pill, Disney's Aladdin, and more. Subscriptions on sale now, and subscribers get early access, discounted tickets, and other benefits. More information at waltonartscenter.org. This is Ozarks at Large with me in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. Lee Wood, KUF's General Manager. Hi, Kyle. Hello, Lee. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. Are you excited because spring's coming? 
yeah, but I, let's go. Let's go. <laughs> 37 degrees in the morning. I know. It doesn't feel like it. It looks like spring, but it doesn't feel like it. But maybe it'll feel like spring because we're having our spring fundraiser. We're going to do our part That's to right. make it feel like spring. <laughs> That's right. We can't make it warmer, but we will have a spring fundraiser. That's right. But it's not just your garden variety spring fundraiser. No, we're going to try some different things this spring. Um, so we, the first major change, I think, is where we have been uh, the live on-air portion where we're coming in and we're, you know, taking a few moments out of programs to fundraise has traditionally been five days, a Monday through Friday. We're only going to go down to three days this time. We're going to shorten it up. We're going to start on Wednesday, April 5th, and then go till uh, Friday, April 7th, live on-air. Right. We're listening to you. Yes, exactly. So we heard, we've heard from our listeners, our donors, um, that really appreciate, you know, not too much disruption of your programs. We understand. So, and also, urgency is really one of the things that drives these on-air fundraisers, and uh, we're making it more urgent in some ways. So we are raising money. We started yesterday uh, raising money. So we're going to try to begin on April 5th with as much money raised as possible. Well, we started on Monday. Yes. We're going to try to get, you know, as close to 80,000 as we possibly can so that we start Wednesday really within, you know, shot. But, you know, you only have three days to call in, basically. There's no time to be like, I'll get it later in the week. It is later in the week. And that's part of what we're trying to build into. And so... As you mentioned, we are listening. Let's make this work. Yes. Yeah, I think that we can remind you, and that's really what on-air fundraisers are. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really a chance for us to remind our listeners we're nonprofit. Uh, yes, we get a small amount of money from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, which we raise ourselves. We also get uh, some money from Fulbright College, from the University of Arkansas. And then the rest of the operating budget we're raising from individual donors and from local businesses. And I should say, not necessarily we're raising, the community is supporting there you go. us. There you go. So um, so you're absolutely right. And I think that we, uh, we that's why we should listen to what uh, our donors and listeners have been telling us. And I think people appreciate that it's funny because it's called a quiet fundraiser, but we're still giving you fundraising messages. They're just within the regularly right. scheduled breaks. Now, we are going to hear something beginning Saturday. Yes. On air that's new as well. That's right. So we are creating a new level of membership um, that is for businesses. So business memberships. In fact, we're uh, inviting the very first uh, sort of group of business members this week to give. And if you give uh, before Friday at noon, then yes, on Saturday, we start mentioning business members every day of that week through April 7th. So if you join as a business member, you're going to get your business's name read on the air the full week of the spring fundraiser and the full week of the fall fundraiser. Um, and you'll also get listed on a directory on our website. So let's say I own Spacely Sprockets. Okay. <laughs> and I want to support... Public radio. So I call or I, 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 I go online and you say can... I want to be a business... Yes. So we, you can actually go to KUAF.com slash business dash membership mm-hmm. and learn all about uh, what the membership level is and really kind of some benefits to you and why it might be a good idea for your business. Um, and there is a link there to give a business membership. You can also go to support KUAF.com and there's a, a level there that's um, available to you. So you can can go either way. So really the idea of this is, I mean, it is, it's great to give local businesses a little bit of airtime, um, but really it's, there's so many new people moving to the area. It's a great opportunity for local businesses, may not have an enormous marketing budget, may not have a marketing budget at all. Right. You can make a tax deductible donation to your public radio station and you'll be listed so that people moving to the area, they might be looking for a plumber, a barber, a sprocket, whatever it is that your business is selling. Um, It's a great way to go find some local businesses who support public radio, which we know we can trust them. We know that they are interested in supporting their community. All right. So to review, the quiet part of the fundraiser is going on right now. You can contribute right now. Help us get close to $80,000. Yes. Support KUAF.com. Wednesday, next week, 
We'll start the live live on air for three days. Mm-hmm. We want to hit it right, urgent, quickly. Yeah, and then businesses that want to be in that level, they can go to kuaf.com slash, slash business dash membership and that way you that on that page you'll learn about the timing you'll learn about what you get we have two different levels so you can decide you know which level is right for you but um yeah and it's you know it just made me think about urgency really is about efficiency we want to be efficient in our fundraising which means that we also want to bring you the best radio that you're used to hearing every single day. This is our attempt at being as efficient as we possibly can. Lee Wood, General Manager at KUAF. Thank you. Thanks, Kyle. The Arkansas Chiefs of Police are publicly opposing legislation that would remove many regulations on short-term rentals in Arkansas. In a letter sent to the City Council and Local Affairs Committee, the Arkansas Association of Chiefs of Police announced opposition to that legislation. The letter lists incidents involving arrests or shootings at short-term rentals in Hot Springs and Texarkana. The letter urges committee members to vote against the bill. A bill supported by Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders to regulate children on social media passed an Arkansas Legislative Committee yesterday. Josie Lenora with our partner station KUAR has more. The Social Media Safety Act would require Arkansans to show a photo ID before setting up a new account. If the bill becomes law, minors would also need express consent from their parents to set up a social media account. Parents would have the right to pursue a lawsuit against companies that don't comply with the rules. In presenting the bill, Republican Senator Tyler Dees expressed his belief that social media can have negative outcomes on kids' mental health. As social media has continued to, to grow, it's, it's very similar to um, the technology advancements in, in which I tell my kids that they can be used for good or they can be used for, 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 for evil. And they can be used to cut your own arm off. It's like a sword. In speaking against the bill, Dustin Brighton from the special interest group NetChoice said some of its provisions would violate Supreme Court precedent. The Supreme Court has already said that access to constitutional speech cannot be conditioned on prior parental consent. Plus, it interferes with decision-making within families. Parents are more than capable of setting rules of the road for social media usage. The bill passed the Senate Insurance and Commerce Committee on a voice vote. A similar bill, also sponsored by Dees, would require age verification to access adult websites. Josie Lenora, KUAR News. Senate Bill 270, a bill that would charge adults with a sex crime for using a bathroom that doesn't match their gender assigned at birth, has passed out of the House Judiciary Committee, but with a brand new amendment. Republican Senator John Payton of Wilburn is the sponsor of this bill and says this is not a bill targeted at transgender people, but a bill to protect children from people who are looking for, quote, sexual gratification. Several Arkansas citizens came to speak against the bill, including transgender youth, about how this bill will criminalize trans individuals for simply using the restroom. Upon the closing of testimony on the bill, Democratic Representative Nicole Clowney of Fayetteville made a final request that the bill be amended. She shared a personal story of a high school friend who was a trans girl. And one day in high school, um, she was discovered by somebody that she met at the mall to not have been born a woman, not have been assigned female at birth, and was beaten so severely. What we are doing with this legislation, even though I don't think it's anybody's intent, is forcing every trans woman in Arkansas who presents as a woman to announce by having to walk into a men's restroom that she is trans. We are forcing those women to expose themselves like my friend was exposed. And we are subjecting those women to the potential violence that my friend suffered. That is the reality of what we are doing. Even the bill sponsor was unable to point to one instance of actual harm that this bill will prevent. This bill will cause it. That is what you are voting on today. This is our opportunity to stop this bill right now. Please vote no. 
Republican Representative Jimmy Gazaway of Paragould spoke up next and agreed with Representative Clowney that an amendment should be added to the bill targeting sexual gratification. Senator Payton obliged and a few minutes later returned with an amendment to the bill spelling out specifically that the bill would only incriminate a person, quote, for the purpose of arousing or gratifying a sexual desire, end quote. The amended bill passed out of committee. And the Arkansas Razorback baseball team returns to SEC competition this weekend after last night's 16-3 win over Omaha, Nebraska. Arkansas has now won 15 straight at home. The Momentary in Bentonville presents three-time Grammy Award-winning hip-hop group The Roots, live and in-person outdoors on the Momentary Green, April 29th. The band has been hailed by Rolling Stone as one of the greatest live acts in the world. Tickets on sale now at themomentary.org. Arkansas PBS is inviting supporters across the state to bring their antiques and collectibles to be professionally evaluated during a two-day taping of a new show called Arkansas Treasures at the Arkansas PBS Studios in Conway, August 5th and 6th. More information at arpbs.org slash Arkansas underscore treasures. This Saturday is the first Northwest Arkansas Book Festival. The street fair-style event will feature author talks, book signings, and celebrate the region's independent bookstores. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth spoke with the event's co-organizer, Courtney Ulrich-Smith, for a preview last week. So, Courtney, can you just sort of talk to me about the Book Fest, how it happened, how NWA Book Fest came about, and why you wanted to to make this happen? Yeah, so I am born and raised in Northwest Arkansas, and for most of my young adult and adulthood. Uh, The only independent bookstore in Northwest Arkansas was Nightbird Books, uh, who closed a couple years ago. And over the last three or so years, it's just been incredible for me to see how much the book community in Northwest Arkansas has grown. We went from one independent bookstore into five across our entire Northwest Arkansas region, and then six if you include the River Valley and and Fort Smith. On April 29th, Independent Bookstore Day, which is sponsored by the American Booksellers Association, is happening. Um, This is always the last Saturday in April. And so We usually try to do some sort of coordinated effort, and I had wanted to do some sort of book fair, adult book fair kind of event uh, with the indies. So I just decided to find a location, put a date on the calendar, and hold myself to it, Um, and it's turned into a lot more than I was expecting it to. And now it's it's much larger than just like getting together and hanging out with my five other independent bookstore friends. Nice. So can you tell me just sort of like what people can expect? What are the events that are going to happen and what all bookstores are involved? Yes. The festival will be open to the public from 10 to 5. It is happening on Arkansas Street in downtown Rogers between Walnut and Chestnut. So we are going to have a Makers Market Street Fair that will have publishers, zines, literary magazines, of course, the independent bookstores, and also a bunch of authors. But we're also going to have two stages of programming. Uh, So we're going to have one stage that is children's YA and middle grade um, in the morning and early afternoon. So there's going to be children's book authors that are going to be reading their books as well as story times that are going to be led by the independent bookstores. And then we'll turn to like kind of this rapid, almost open mic type prose poetry stage in the afternoon. Um, and then we also have another stage that is entirely dedicated to adult fiction and adult nonfiction. Small little breaks in between there where we have what we're calling Booksellers Recommend, which is opportunities for booksellers from the independent bookstores to talk to their customers and customers who might not know them and and really just talk about programs in their own bookstores that they're excited about, books that they want you to read. The programming happens all day. We will have music breaks in the over lunch and then in the early afternoon. Uh, but you can come at any point during the day and catch a short little 15-minute author reading or an author signing or a story time, bring your kids. It's family friendly. It's going to be outdoors. Um, All the stages will be covered and all of that. So it's a rain or shine event, but it's really just a chance to come explore and meet other book lovers in the community. Yeah. And one of the things that I like how I saw it was from other uh, like independent authors, local authors posting about the book fest happening. And I'm wondering like, have you seen more local authors, independent authors kind of 
coming to the forefront in the last couple of years as these independent bookstores have been popping up? Yeah, that's one of my favorite things about independent bookstores is that these authors, like to be fair, these authors have always been here. It's more just your local bookstores are such an amazing platform for local authors. It is so much easier for them, especially self-published authors, to do events, to get their books on shelves, to help inform the community that they're here. And and I've always seen, you know, as we get more independent bookstores, you get more acclaim for those self-published authors, which means, hey, now we need a regional publisher. And we, we have several of those as well. But as that one sector of the community grows, it propels growth in others as well. So you see mm-hmm. more authors being successful and regional publishers becoming national publishers and all of these different opportunities that the indies provide to local authors is kind of what brought them more to the public eye. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about your bookstore and how you kind of got started? I'm always curious about how someone, because it sounds like such a cool job. I know that's probably very difficult, but I, how did you say, I want to open an independent bookstore. I want to do this here in Rogers. Yeah, so it is, it was kind of a roundabout thing. Um, We actually started a book club, I guess it was April 2020. Um, But something I was noticing, this was a time when people really needed connection. And this was a time when people didn't know what to do with themselves. And so I saw a lot of friends and family trying to get back into reading. But like, Reading is 100% a skill, and if you don't use it, it becomes really hard over time. And so people were trying to read and were choosing the wrong books or were not finding stuff that was interesting to them or weren't feeling supported in that journey. And so a lot of people were giving up. And so we started a book club, and then we officially like spun up a little independent pop-up bookstore inside our other shop that we own in downtown Rogers. But um, I've always loved reading. I've actually always wanted to own a bookstore. Um, and the book club was kind of a way to like convince my husband that we're already doing this. <laughs> I might as well just have a full bookstore. Yeah. So. And so how's it been, I guess, having like a brick and mortar place for the past? When did that start? September. September okay. 2021. It's very, very, very small. We're only like 300 square feet or something like that. And so I, I love being in the store with customers and interacting with them and hearing about what they've read and being able to recommend things that maybe are a little outside of their comfort zone or different than what they typically go to, but have parallel themes. And that's what I think book sellers are really good at. And what you get at a small bookstore as opposed to like a big box store is that ability to break out of your comfort zone and find new things that maybe you wouldn't have picked up. Yeah. And so when you're, when you're doing that, when you're helping people, how do you help them navigate that? Oh, that's such a hard question um, because we just read a lot. Like, yeah. We read so much. And um, even if we don't read titles, we spend time with publishing reps and going to conferences and going to author talks and, and learning about kind of the substance behind the text. Mm-hmm. You grow a skill for for following those threads. If somebody comes to me with a, a title or an author that they're really excited about or they just read and they loved Most of the time I'm going to know the title or I'm going to know the book and I'm going to be able to understand, okay, the way that it's written and the topics that it's about and the structure. And I'm going to be able to find something on our shelves that is within the same genre or maybe a different genre, but has that same feel. I feel like there is a certain sort of magic to it, honestly. And then another thing about the, I guess, the ecosystem here in Northwest Arkansas Mm -hmm. and even the River Valley as well is that I guess intuitively you would think, okay, when independent bookstores pop up, it would be like competition between them. But we've seen so many pop up and it feels like there's a good cohesion between all of you. So what is that, I guess, relationship like between everybody? And especially when you were coming together to put this festival on, you know, how did that go? What's that conversation like? Yeah, I mean, that conversation has been amazing. All of the indies that are participating have been so helpful in so many different ways. And I absolutely do not believe that we are competition to one another because we are all relatively small in size when you like compare it's like physical space when you compare us to like a big box store. And so we all naturally gravitate towards 
what our staff or what the owners are excited about. And even though we're all bookstores, we we have a specific genre or niche or something that we all play in. And I do not hesitate at all if someone comes in looking for a title that I might not have on my shelves today to send them down the street to, to Brick Lane, who's also in downtown Rogers, or to Bentonville to Two Friends or Fayetteville to Pearls, or now we have Mosley Britos popping up in Springdale and Bookish in Fort Smith. So we are such a community. We always try to collaborate. And so for you, you know, why, why have this book festival? Why is it important for the community to have this? Like we, we talked about earlier, it's just there is so much talent in Northwest Arkansas that I don't think that people necessarily see every day or a lot of the majority of the public understands that we do have, even if you only read the NYT bestseller list or the Oprah book club or, or whatever, we have those people in Arkansas. We have those authors in Arkansas. And so this is a, a celebration of that, but it's also an accessible platform for local authors and new authors. We have three or four authors that have either just published their first book within like the last couple of weeks or are about to publish their first book. And so this is going to be their their opportunity to get in front of the public and get their name out there and share their excitement for writing and for our community. And so this is a way to bring visibility to them um, while also just having a day of like fun together. Book people are the best people. I, I put out a call for volunteers and I had to shut the form down within like eight hours because I had wow. too many volunteers. And I was like, never in my life have I ever had too many volunteers. Yeah. Is there anything about this region that's like unique for book lovers or for this kind of community that you've seen? I mean, we're surrounded by educational institutes that mm-hmm. have incredible writing and creative writing programs um, and So, you know, I think it's natural to see that we have talent coming out of those places and it's a hard region to not fall in love with. So you see a lot of people coming to school and then sticking around for a little bit. Um, So I think that always helps. Um, We've got a lot of support from we've got um, several authors that are going to be at the festival that are either professors at the university or at one of the universities, I should say, or are in the programs. We have, you know, Arkansas International, which is the literary magazine at the University of Arkansas, is going to be there as well. And so I think we're this kind of pocket of institutes um, that are, are really helping drive a lot of the talent that that's coming in the region. All right. Now the hard facts. Yes. Uh, so when what are the dates and times and what should people know? Yes. So April 1st, um, from 10 to 5, it is free to the public. It is going to be, uh, BookFest is going to be on Arkansas Street in downtown Rogers between Walnut and Chestnut. You can come anytime. We're going to have 38 booths for you to explore. 26 authors are going to be speaking throughout the day. Uh, there will be signings um, and opportunities to interact with those authors after their talks. Um, There's going to be food trucks, music. Uh, There's also just downtown Rogers is a wonderful place to explore as well. So stop by the festival, catch some author talks, shop at some booths. And then before you head home, go explore downtown Rogers and all the other amazing shops and restaurants that are there as well. Courtney, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I appreciate it. Yes, thank you. We are so excited and hope to see everybody on April 1st. That was Courtney Ulrich-Smith speaking with Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth inside the Karen Taha News Studio. Opera in the Ozarks kicks off its spring alumni recital concert series at Thaden School in Bentonville Sunday, April 23rd with an afternoon of arias and art songs featuring internationally recognized soprano Katrina Thurman and baritone Pal Brum, accompanied by pianist Hyun Kim. Tickets available at opera.org. This spring, the Scott Family Amazium in Bentonville invites guests to enjoy programs for all ages, from summer camps for kids to teen and adult workshops. And on April 21st, Napholes Construction presents this year's Ungala, a 21-and-up night of drinks, play, and interactive experiences. Information at amazium.org. One of the newest professors in the African and African American Studies program is Dr. Alexia Angton. Dr. Ainton's research focuses on criminal justice, sociology, and the school-to-prison pipeline. 
She's the most recent guest on our partner podcast, Undisciplined. And we jump into the conversation here discussing her experience growing up in school. Thankfully, I've had a, a lots of different experiences. Um, my elementary school was very white, right? Like very white space. Um, and, you know, I had some diversity in my friends, but like didn't really see a whole lot of differences from an elementary perspective. Now we know that like kids in elementary school do get suspended and those types of things too. Um, but I don't really remember any of that. In middle school, my middle school was like a magnet school, but it was primarily black and Latino um, like lower income students. Um, and so I did, I remembered us having a SRO, right, a school resource officer um, in our middle school. And I remember his name was like this like cool ball guy. Like everybody loved. Was, he, was he black? No, he was white. But he was like, you know, everybody's like, oh yeah, like officer so-and-so, like he's cool, you know, whatever. And I didn't necessarily see too many interactions that were negative, right, like with him. So I don't think I had even questioned the fact that we had a, a police officer in school yeah. at that time. I was just kind of like, oh, like, he's just there. Like most people assume, like, oh, he's just there to make sure, like, we're safe and, you know, nothing pops off, right, or, like, to break up fights because, you know, yeah. kids be fighting. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I was like, okay, whatever. Um, and then in high school – my high school was diverse. It was the most diverse um, school in the district. Um, and so it was a combination of black, white, Latino, um, had a few Asian as well. But you could definitely see that there were um, some segregation that was happening within the school, right, in terms of classes, who's in your classes. So I was in AP. So it was like, it's very few of me, right, in those classes. Um, I think we had two SROs. I don't know their names, which I guess is a good thing. Um, but I definitely do remember things happening in high school of, like, our school would be used for, like, SWAT drills. <laughs> like, what? we would have SWAT what? drills at our high school. So they come with the tank and, like, we're on lockdown. They would have the drug dogs come. What? And then sniff lockers. Um, for drugs and stuff, they would have, there was like a nearby apartment. Um, and so, of course, people were like, you know, we can't, like, if we fight at school, then we might get suspended and get charges. So people would go, like, across the street, basically, to these apartments to fight. And then the police officers started going over there. <laughs> So it was like, is this your jurisdiction, dog? Like, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> but, you know, like people would like that's what would happen. So I remember, you know, folks getting arrested at school. Drugs, of course, are at most schools, unfortunately. But like folks getting, you know, ISS in school suspension or out of school suspension for that. Um, and so there would be some kids that like would get out of school suspension, be gone for three to five days, come back, fight again and be back out. <laughs> And so, so did your school have a therapist, counselor? I mean, was that sought out as a method to to remedy the situation of kids acting out? We had what was called a light counselor. Um, and so the light counselor was someone who I think was kind of supposed to serve that role, um, was a person that you could go to for kind of like extra stuff like that's going on with you um my interaction with the light counselor we had basically like a group that was called like light brigade but we would do more preventative stuff of like targeting for like elementary school kids so we would go to the elementaries and do like skits and stuff about like bullying or like drugs and like that type of stuff but i don't remember how engaged or how much that person the light counselor was actually utilized to be a go Do you mean like light, like L-I-T-E or L-I-G-H-T? L-I-G-H-T. Oh, okay. But it was like a, a I'm thinking about like my counselor in high school, and I was discussing this with my sister the other day. Like, I went to an all-girls school, so my, the whole school was just paranoid about us getting pregnant. Of course. You know, so it was just constant, like, trying, because we were supposed to be ladies, mm-hmm. you know, so like, talking about sex but in a roundabout way <laughs> you know and it, like not at all and so our counselor was like you know of like sexual abuse like there was nothing to do with like fighting or anything like that because we were ladies you know and so it's quite interesting you know my podunk little school of of you know I, w- I had a graduate county school at a graduating class of 64 that should tell you <laughs> How middle of nowhere I grew up. 
Man, you big city life, yeah. Matthew. Yeah, city city boy. City through boy, and city boy up three thousand. We had we had a uh, school resource officer at my school. He was part of the 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 sheriff's department. He was a deputy sheriff, and the only interaction I ever had with him, I have a brother who's two years older than me who has autism, and he would have outbursts occasionally in school. And he had a teacher in high school who was not well equipped to be a special education teacher. I'll, I'll leave it at that. And uh, she decided the best way to to interact with my brother in the midst of an outburst was to say that he was gonna that she was gonna go get the school resource officer. Oh my gosh! Which, which he took to believe they're gonna handcuff me and throw me in prison and throw away the key. And so he bursts out of the classroom and starts running away from school. May I remind you, middle of nowhere school, surrounded by cornfields, there's nowhere for oh him to God. go. And so my brother's just running away. And I mean, like, he doesn't run very fast, so it wasn't very hard to catch right. up with him. <laughs> but I got but I got called out of class. So you would have to chase him? Well, yeah, because he didn't want the cop chasing him. Because oh, okay. he, in his mind, right. he said, like, the cop's going to catch me. He's either going to shoot right. me or he's going to put me in prison. So you would have to talk him down to yeah. say it's okay. Yeah. Wow. So, um, so yeah, I mean, even in, even in my situation, which is literally the exact opposite of your school situation, very, very rural, extraordinarily white. Like, there were still, like, school resource officer was well respected by those who didn't interact with them but it still had structurally and systematically yeah. they were put in positions to handle things that they probably shouldn't have been handling right that they were that they were not equipped to do and that there are better better resourced people to do the work that a school resource officer should have been doing i mean i i think the good part is that people are getting to the point where they're understanding that like schools are starting to say hey we're not going to have police officers in schools anymore um and i think it i mean some people of course are outraged Chad. yeah <laughs> because we you know the idea of discipline and punish is so heavily and deeply embedded in our society but only some <laughs> <laughs> only discipline and punish only some. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that the people who are outraged, like, why would we not? We want to keep our kids safe and all of these things, you know, and it's like it's not just a safety. Per- these school resource officers are trained to be police officers. Right. That is their training. So when things happen, that's how they respond. Right. Most of them are not like, OK, you know, let me make some connections with the students. Let right. them know that, like, they can come to me if something happens. They or haven't whatever. had training in adolescent development. Yes. Right. Yes. Right. So they're used to dealing with adults. Yes. And that's in a split second. That's how they're going to respond. And so, like, people that are like, yeah, what's to keep our kids safe? I'm like, we have RSOs on campuses and there are still school shootings. Yes. Exactly. Oh, I mean, what's, <laughs> what's the one over in Texas the, the right. other day that they didn't even go in the classroom? Exactly. So it's like, what is what is actually safety and safety for whom? Not not to mention the fact that many black people and black young people are mistaken for adults. Yes. And so treated accordingly. Yes. You're talking about adultification. Yeah. Yeah. This idea that there's a study that talks about how even starting at age four, I think that black girls are considered to be older more mature, know more about mature topics, need less support, need need less nurturing, like all of that by like adults. Adults, there was a study that asked adults like kind of how do you perceive black girls and that's what they said. It's like starting at age four. So it's like if you're seeing this child as an adult, but I think it's interesting because we see the opposite when it comes to white kids. They can be 22 and they're like, oh, they're still a kid. Right. They get this kind of like um, extended adolescence. And so they're not perceived as threatening in the same way, because as if you think that a kid is more mature than they are, then you also assume that they have more culpability and they understand their actions when it is not always true. Right. Like they respond or they react, I should say, um, in these quick situations. And so it's like but that's not the. The benefit of the doubt is not afforded to all. And I think that when we think about 
how does police officers being in schools make some people safe and some people unsafe? Even like you were talking about before, like, you know, having to go through metal detectors, like some students had to do that going into school, mm-hmm. right? We had SWAT drills and things like that of like, are we seeing that for a lot of people and just in general, schools are criminalizing students. And who are the students yeah. that they're criminalizing, right? Especially tends to be students from minoritized backgrounds, right? Students of color, especially black students, yeah. right? And Latinos, students with disabilities, right? Because they are also um, a target population that um, get, you know, disciplined um, a lot. And even when we think about who's put into, spe- like, folks who are in special education, right. which a lot of times students of color get pushed in there too, right? And so this, this like compounding effect. Dr. Alexia Angton is an assistant professor at the University of Arkansas. You can hear the rest of that conversation with Undisciplined's host, Dr. Karee Banton, wherever you get your podcasts. It's been a while since we had the duo Shore and Cockrum on our program. We last welcomed them into the studio in early 2020, right before the pandemic began. This weekend, they'll perform at Ozark Folkways in Winslow. In advance, Susan Shore and Michael Cockrum came to our Furman Garner Performance Studio. In a moment, they'll talk about this weekend's show with Ozarks at Large's Timothy Dennis. But first, their original song, What Are You Really Worth? Mr. Cooperman sits by the phone and all he makes is money. Up three million just this morning, so easy it ain't funny. Hedge funds, short sales, buyouts, all the darker arts. You need that killer instinct, certain kind of smarts. Look at all the good I do, give so much away. Sure, the system's a little rigged and we'll just keep it that way. Throw it around, it'll trickle down. It's the greatest show on earth. Now that you've got billions, Leon, what do you really worth? Bezos, he'll sell you anything, drop it right at your front door. He wants to be a space cowboy, but he's looking for something more. He's searching for eternal life, he's paying for the research. Even if you live forever, Jeff, what do you really worth? Marie Curie, she missed the boat, she gave all her ideas away. Mozart went to a pauper's grave Lots of notes, not much pay Nick Tesla died a poor man He had no business sense at all Van Gogh, that man was always broke That's his painting off my wall Is an overdrive, he makes fancy plug-in cars. Put the world on autopilot and he's off to conquer Mars. All electric, rich boy toys, he's a genius since its birth. Now that you got Twitter, Elon, what do you really worth? Even if you live forever, what do you really worth? Now that you've got billions, what do you really worth? Very nice. <laughs> Is that an original? That's original. That's a fairly recent one for us. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Which, as we were talking earlier, it's been a few years since y'all have been in here. Last time you were uh, promoting the Barbalutes' new album. Have you been writing a lot more music recently? Uh, I have been writing. It, for me, especially now, they come slow. <laughs> and... Uh, but their quality. But their quality, yeah. <laughs> it's all about quality over quality, yeah. or so I'm told. Yes, it seems right. like 
when you get older, <laughs> you know, you've heard so much music. Every song I write, I ask myself, you know, why why does this why does this song need to be in the world? You mm. know, so uh, I don't like to write filler songs. So. Yeah. So have you all been playing many shows lately? A few, yeah. We just did a uh, Valentine's show. Well, the quality, show. the quality. There, there you go. <laughs> there you go. The quality shows. Yeah, we did a Valentine's show up yeah. on um, Mount Sequoia for Phoenix Gallery. Oh, okay. Which was a very sweet event. Cool. Yeah, we, we, we don't have that many love songs, so we had a could have pretend up there. But we did have a few. We added a few more. How, how, how do you pretend a song is a love song. We walk, well, in the you middle of a solo, you die, I walk <laughs> over to him and I kiss him. A look of <laughs> hunger in your eyes or something yeah. while you're singing. Okay. Yeah. I wear more lipstick and then I, I, I kiss his guitar so it has like lipstick marks all over. I like it. I like it. No, it was, that was a fun show. It was great. So you'll have another show coming up at Ozark Folkways. Yeah. Uh, is this your first time to play there or no? Oh, we play there a lot. Okay, I thought so. I thought yeah, so. What do, you, what do you like about playing there? It's just a beautiful venue. You know, what's nice about it is that you could play inside in the gallery area or outside if it's not, you know, if the locusts haven't come down and are <laughs> eating your head. But, no, if it's not cold or rainy or something. So there's that option. Yeah. But it's just, a, it's just a warm space. It sounds great in there. And, you know, and the folks who come out to hear us are, yeah. are also quality. Yeah. And, and often quantity, too, in yes. this case. But, um, but it's very familiar to us, and so it's not like, gee, how do you think we'll go over? I mean, it's, it's a lovely it's a lovely space. Yeah. So for people who haven't been there, um, you know, it's not just a musical venue, obviously, but right. it's, a, it's an art gallery and mm -hmm. stuff. They promote, you know, folk art and, they do. Yeah, and that sort of thing, which is really important. Yeah. And also being, I mean, it's practically to Mount Gaylor, so we draw different folks. Some people come up from Fort Smith, and mm -hmm. so, yeah, it's good. Great. So do you all know what you all are going to play at this show? Do you kind of determine it when you get there, fill out the crowd? Like, what, what, what's the game plan? We have a list. Yeah. There's a few blanks in the list yet, yeah. but... Right. You know, we have been playing together for 13 years. Yeah, 13 but, years, yeah. So we have, a, you know, we have a backlog of songs we can draw from and still trying to write new stuff. So. We're going to dredge up some old songs, too. Yeah. Um, so dredge, it sounds awful. I'm going to dredge it up <laughs> from the bottom. <laughs> but um, no, songs that, that, I mean, one of mine that I haven't sung in a long, long time is uh, about my aunt. So I'm going to sing that one. and. Unless unless the audience looks like they want to just party, and then yes. we won't do that one. <laughs> we'll see what happens. The show at Ozark Folkways is yes. April 1st. First. Mm -hmm. And it really is happening. It's not just a joke. <laughs> we really are playing. We really are playing April Fool's Day, and, and we're going to start at 6 o'clock. Okay play a couple of sets and at this point we don't know if it's going to be indoor or outdoor right, so you know right. so if people are wanting if, you know want if, if it's inside feel free to bring your masks if you'd like mm -hmm. to you know do covid masking um right. and we'll just see and you know we'll probably play for a few hours all, mm -hmm. all together and and uh, a good time hopefully will be had by <laughs> by all Susan Shore and Michael Cochran speaking with Ozarks at Large's Timothy Dennis in the Furman Garner Performance Studio last week. They'll perform Saturday night at Ozark Folkways in Winslow. Show begins at 6. $10 suggested at the door supporting musicians and the mission of Ozark Folkways. You can find out more about the duo by going to Facebook and searching for Shore and Cochran. You can find out more about Ozark Folkways at ozarkfolkways.org. KUAF's The Lunch Hour is back, and this month we're bringing you the soulful sounds of Lovemore Records' very own Sarah Lilly, along with the tasty and savory foods of Bites and Bowls. You don't want to miss this month's Lunch Hour, happening this Friday, March 31st from noon to 1. The Lunch Hour featuring Sarah Lilly and food from Bites and Bowls, this Friday, March 31st, noon to 1. We'll see you there. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Osage Mills. Matthew produced today's show in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. Contributors today included Rachel Sanchez-Smith, Daniel Carruth, Timothy Dennis, and Karee Banton. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellums. Thank you so much for listening. We're back with you tomorrow. Be well.